Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. The attempt to reconcile empirical inquiry with non-quantifiable aspects of reality is an old one, and even prompted Galileo to famously exclaim that the Bible shows the way to go to heaven, not the way the heavens go. But his common sense observation often proves to be deceptively straightforward, especially when inverted. The question remains, is there inherent complementarity between science and theology? What is the boundary line between them? How does recognizing the limits of each create balance and contribute to our understanding? To answer these and other questions, we are joined by Dr. Thomas Sheehan, a physicist and the director of the Institute for Theological Encounter with Science and Religion in St. Louis, Missouri. Dr. Sheehan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bill. I'm glad to be here. You talk about the scientific method and its limitations in the context of the multiverse theory, correct? That is indeed correct, yes. Could you briefly describe for us what the multiverse theory is? Yes, it's fairly easy to state the multiverse theory, or hypothesis, uh, and it's as follows. In addition to the universe in which we live and make observations, there are also an infinite number of totally non-observable universes. They keep on bubbling up all the time, starting and expanding in all time and space, completely unassociated with our universe. Now, there are some very serious consequences due to the meaning of the mathematical word infinite. One, everything imaginable actually comes true someplace or sometime or other. Two, there would be an infinite number of universes just like ours. Three, physicist and author Stephen Barr points out that each human being exists in not one or even a few, but an infinite number of copies with infinitely various life experiences. Now, I will add that some of those universes are really horrible to imagine. For example, where Hitler wins World War II or Stalin conquers America. When you think carefully about the real meaning of the mathematical term infinite, then no one is willing to accept what it implies. And that is the essential flaw in the entire multiverse line of thinking. Before we move on to um, some of the particular proponents of the theory, one thing that I want to ask you is you say, uh, you know, no one is willing to accept what infinite implies. But does our willingness to accept a reality have any effect on it? You know, the idea that just because we don't like the truth doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. That is correct. Yeah, true. So why is it a flaw that we're not willing to accept the implications. How does that flaw the theory if, in fact, it is reality? Well, this comes really as blends into the uh, next um, theme of, of talking about is who's in favor of it and why do they like it and where are they on strong grounds or where are they on weak grounds? And the point I'm making about when you really look at what the word infinite means 
you look back and you discover that you're standing on quicksand. Okay. Well, so if that's going to help explain uh, explain this idea of the implications, so I guess who are the people who are uh, putting forward this idea and why is it such an attractive theory to them? Well, okay. Uh, first of all, some scientists very charitably note that a multiverse is possible in principle because we cannot know anything about a totally unobservable entity. In particular, we can't prove that any such system doesn't exist. You can't prove a negative. Um, Father Robert Spitzer, SJ, and Professor Stephen Barr are therefore examples of people who are both tolerant of the multiverse hypothesis, but they are certainly not proponents of the multiverse hypothesis. On the other hand, some other scientists are avid proponents because when you look at our carefully designed and fine-tuned universe, the evidence is strong that this universe was created by a transcendent being outside the universe. They don't want to address that possibility. Uh, in opposition to such a conclusion, belief in a multiverse permits the assertion that our very precisely tuned universe exists just by chance alone. That is, by hypothesizing an infinite number of universes, they can say that we just so happen to live in the one that got lucky and it all worked out to permit life as we know it. So that's the reason people advocate it. Okay, so basically they're advocating it as a way to explain away a uh, religious uh, a religious idea of reality and to support an atheistic one. Exactly. We say transcendental creator outside the universe. They say no. There's that must be an infinite number. So that's the that's the way the excuse is built. Regardless of its scientific and moral implications, uh, which we just talked about, you've also criti criticized this theory as being formerly a weak theory, specifically because it violates Occam's razor. Correct? Yes. So would you explain why you say that this is a weak theory? Okay. To understand multiverse uh, and the relationship to Occam's razor, I have to say what Occam's razor is. This is a principle of science that's been around since a man named William of Occam in about the 14th century or so. And it says, always choose the simplest theory that explains the observable data. So data drives science, and you build theories that explain the data. So how does this principle apply to unobservable phenomena like the multiverse? Well, it doesn't. Occam's razor is a principle of the scientific method that totally excludes the multiverse. Occam's razor is okay with a hypothesis that something is extremely difficult to observe. And indeed, we just now found gravitational waves after about a century since Einstein's prediction. However, unobservable in principle is not allowed. Any such hypothesis necessarily clutters up a theory and doesn't explain anything. So I say the phrase, do not festoon your theory with things that are unobservable in principle. 
And if you choose to follow a hypothesis that violates Occam's razor, well, stop calling yourself a scientist. There's just no possible way to prove whether something is true or false if it's unobservable. So a theory that can't be falsified in principle is a worthless theory. It's just mere speculation. And any test of its fairness is skewed because it distorts our perception of reality in some hidden way. If you believe in the multiverse, you're carrying extra baggage around with your theory. It adds nothing to your understanding but seduces you with the notion that you know more. The other universes under the multiverse hypothesis have no connection to our universe, hence no quantitative effects at all. It is certainly not a question for science because science cannot investigate it. The present day qualitative effect is to give cover to those who cannot bring themselves to believe in God. I can give you a, a comparable example. Um, in, in politics, sometimes people want to blame some other group for all of society's troubles. Um, currently, it's blame the rich. Okay, way back in Hitler's days, it was blame the Jews. But in every such case, you wind up with a quick, simple slogan, which makes you think you understand the issue when you don't. So before before we move on. It, it makes a lot of sense what you're saying about with Occam's razor saying that if we can't observe it, don't uh, include it in your theory. Now, I have a question about the simplest explanation being the best. Can you give another example from one of the physical sciences where the simplest explanation is uh, turned out being better, uh, you know, more uh, true to reality than a more complicated one. Since, you know, you brought up the example of gravitational waves, and that's definitely a very complex theory. Um, so how does how does the simplicity enter into it? It makes a lot of sense how the observability or non-observability of a phenomenon um, enters into it, but how does the simplicity aspect enter into it as well? I'll give you the perfect example. All right. 18th century, people started to observe starlight and light from uh, heated objects like a boiling sodium or whatever. And all these various types of light were all over the place at different wavelengths and so forth. And the clutter of data was gigantic. All right. During the 19th century, some kind, a branch of mathematics called group theory came along. And at the time, mathematics, mathematicians delighted because it seemed to be quite useless. And along about the 20th century, group theory was taken and applied to this spectroscopy. That is, all these different wavelengths of lights from stars and other things. And when quantum mechanics came along in 1925, and group theory was part of it by this time, it all fell together in place in an absolutely beautiful explanation of everything you could see in the way of wavelengths of light, all spectroscopy. And that was so convincing in the late 20s that it just became certifiedly true that quantum mechanics was right because of the simplicity of the 
theory that explained all of spectroscopy, and it was due to using group theory within your theory of, of the, the mathematical group theory, that is, within the physical theory of quantum mechanics. That's, that's just a beautiful example of exactly what you're asking for. I guess my next question would have to be, is the scientific method meant to examine things that are unobservable? Okay, the scientific method does not deal with unobservable in principle things. Once you go beyond what you can hypothesize and test, you leave the realm of science. Unobservables are not the purview of science. Now there are certain realities, uh, for example, love, which are known to exist, but the methods of science do not apply to them. Other fields of inquiry, theology, philosophy, art, culture, may be very useful in understanding them. Think of a Shakespeare poem that might convey a lesson about love, but that's outside of science. So, you know, psychologists and um, those, those, kind, those disciplines also explore ideas of love and things like that. How do they fit in to this, um, to this scheme here? Well, uh, if you can tell the difference and not fool yourself, that's when you get somewhere. If you say, hey, yesterday I was doing science, today I'm doing uh, culture, art, theology, whatever, and don't get them confused, then you're ahead. That's the key to remember. You know, is don't be able to tell the difference between the realms of inquiry that you're engaging in. All right. So what kind of confusion arises when scientists apply a uh, scientific method to qualitative questions? Well, when scientists apply a scientific method to the non-quantifiable side of life, they sometimes delude themselves into thinking they have an explanation when they don't. It's possible to chart graphs and put curves through data. Um, you can uh, chart the, the number of um, marriages or the number of divorces, for example. Now you can then follow this with some very profound theorizing. But if the scientific method is not applicable in the first place, the profound conclusions drawn will be mere unsupportable speculation. And Sigmund Freud did a lot of that, for example, in his book, The Future of an Illusion, where he tried to explain away religion. Now, there are sciences that can be applied to non-quantifiable matters, but great care is required to avoid overstepping what the measurements actually tell you. Anthropology immediately comes to mind. The data over the many, many ages is very sparse, and conjecture is a big component of this field. The temptation to jump from limited data to a general conclusion is very strong. That's the danger. All right, so would it be fair to say that there are qualitative aspects of reality that we can learn about through experience as opposed to quantitative things we can learn about through experimentation? And um, can we have less certitude about qualitative aspects than about quantitative ones? 
Um, yes, there definitely are. Um, we learn about all kinds of things from experience from the time we're very tiny children. You start taking in data just by opening your eyes and looking around, listening and so forth. And um, you learn about these things not through the um, scientific method, but just by your general life experience. And you can definitely understand and know these things, even though you might not have done an experiment or something like that. So where you have less certitude, really, is when there could be a chance for a, um, a mistaken observation, a mistaken theory, and there can be a way to correct it through experimentation. But for the most part, you really can learn a lot through experience and and even without the um, quantitative methods. So it's definitely possible. So how do we reconcile the empirical quantitative scientific approach with the non-quantifiable side of life that we gain insight into through experience? Well, there's a complementarity, complementary pathway. Um, this is something that particularly my organization, Institute for Theological Encounter and Science and Technology, stresses very strongly that there are these complementary pathways towards knowledge uh, in which science has a role to play and so does philosophy, theology, etc. Empirical science is very helpful and very, very good as far as it goes. Theology doesn't tell science what to do. Well, the converse needs to be observed as well. When science correctly recognizes its own limits, it contributes very well to understanding. Scientists who recognize the boundaries of science are quite comfortable when cooperating with the qualitative approaches. This is exactly what we do in my organization. The temptation, however, to overstep the boundaries comes from the fact, the track record, that science has enjoyed success after success after success for many, many years in a lot of quantitative fields. And so therefore there's the temptation to apply it where it shouldn't be applied. Instead, the smart scientist pauses and says, go to one of these complementary fields and let that field carry you forward in knowledge. So are what you're saying then is that the the danger here is for scientists to, as you said, overstep their bounds and turn scientific inquiry into its own kind of metaphysics or religion and then fall prey to the same um, problems that they tend to criticize for overstepping into science? Exactly true. Yeah. There was a famous line by Pope John Paul II about 20 years ago to the effect that science can purify religion from uh, um, superstition and something, but religion can purify science from idolatry and false absolutes. And when you have formed a false absolute, which is a very strong temptation coming from the scientific field, you can wind up essentially worshiping that false absolute. 
and it's a huge mistake. But there are scientists who believe so strongly in science that it is the only pathway to knowledge that they fall prey to those false absolutes. So Pope John Paul II was very perceptive with that observation, that balance between religion and science. Because his next sentence was, together they can move forward into a better world. Excellent. Excellent. So, to wrap it up here, it seems that the that the trick is finding where that boundary is. And it seems like we can differentiate between the two using common sense. What's scientific, what's not scientific. And um, so does common sense have a place in scientific inquiry? Absolutely. Common sense is the cornerstone of scientific inquiry. Um, Father Bernard Lonergan, a Canadian Jesuit, 20th century philosopher, wrote a famous book called Insight, an Inquiry into Human Understanding. And there he brings this out very clearly. He starts chapter one with common sense. You make observations and then you bring in common sense in order to interpret the meaning of the observed data. When you generate a new theory that makes predictions, your common sense guides you in the development of that theory. You choose what mathematics to employ, what uh, physics principles and so forth, en route to your new theory. And that's how you do it. Now, there are observations sometimes which lead you into entirely new theoretical directions. Um, relativity and quantum mechanics are examples. Uh, for example, light from distant stars was arriving at the, quote, wrong wavelengths or frequencies. The observations didn't agree with common sense. And that forced scientists to go back and ask again and readjust what the meaning of common sense is. And we came eventually in this example to understand how light is redshifted when things are moving away from us at a finite fraction of the speed of light. That's common sense interacting with the quantitative methods of science to lead you forward towards the truth. And that's what they try to do, what we as scientists try to do as best we can. You've talked about common sense brings meaning to the data. So is, so is science meant just to collect and interpret the data and something else is to give meaning to that interpretation? That's really so, yeah. That's, um, it's commonly known and, and often referred to by scientists these days that uh, science asks questions of the form how, but it is religion that asks the questions of the form why. Um, the most puzzling question to all scientists has been now for about a century is, why is there something instead of nothing? And why is there anything at all? But as soon as you say why, you're leaving the realm of science because you're, the boundary of science just is there. It, it, it doesn't go into that zone. And you're leaving it to, when you say why, you're leaving it to fields like philosophy and theology, art, culture, a whole bunch of human things that are very important, very, very important but beyond the boundary of science. I hope that our listeners will appreciate the fact 
that science goes hand in hand with theology, that science does not stand alone, and that science isn't the only pathway to knowledge, but is an important part of it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, sir. Thanks for your time. Happy to be here. That was Dr. Thomas Sheehan speaking about the complementarity of empirical and philosophical inquiry. For more information on the relationship between science and religion, or to find answers to other bioethical questions, visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Phil Cerrone. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.